Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets. And I'm Eve Hallam. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic. And in this episode, we consider different ways an author might look to history to enrich her novels. We first became interested in interviewing our guest for this episode, Caitlin Greenidge, because of a piece she wrote for the New York Times Magazine about spirituals as poetry and resistance. We initially hoped she'd come on the podcast to tell us more about spirituals, and then when we went to her website to get her contact information, we realized she's the author of the novel Liberty, which came out this year to great acclaim, as well as a fascinating first novel called We Love You, Charlie Freeman. We were so excited when she agreed to come and speak with us about all of it. Yes, and more than a little in awe, because Caitlin is incredibly accomplished. She's the recipient of fellowships from the Whiting Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies, the Lewis Center for the Arts at Princeton University, and the Guggenheim Foundation. She's currently Features Director at Harper's Bazaar, as well as a contributing writer for The New York Times. Her writing has also appeared in Vogue, Glamour, The Wall Street Journal, Elle, BuzzFeed, and The Believer, among many other places. Her debut novel, We Love You, Charlie Freeman, was one of the New York Times Critics' Top 10 Books of 2016. Liberty, her second novel, was named one of the most anticipated books of 2021 by O, The Oprah Magazine, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Time, The Rumpus, Book Page, Harper's Bazaar, Ms. Magazine, and more. I just want to give a very brief description of Caitlin's books before we get to the interview. We Love You, Charlie Freeman tells the story of what happens when a Black family agrees to live with a young chimpanzee in an apartment at an institute to teach the chimp sign language and raise him as part of the family. The parents, especially the mother, are very interested in this opportunity and the children not so much. Liberty tells the story of a freeborn Black girl named Liberty Sampson, who's coming of age in Reconstruction-era Brooklyn. Her mother is a practicing physician. Her character is based on one of the first Black women doctors in the U.S. Liberty's mother wants Liberty to become a doctor as well, but Liberty has a different view of what she wants. We started by asking Caitlin why, although Liberty's mother is a consummate achiever, Liberty herself chooses not to be capital I inspiring. Here's what Caitlin said. Part of it was like a a challenge to myself to write a novel about a Black woman in the past and have her not be, you know, an inspirational figure. She's just a person. I worked in Black history sites for about 10 years. So I've thought really deeply about the ways the public engages with Black history. A lot of people like to emphasize exceptionalism in Black history. Um, the exceptional figures, exceptional people. There's a lot of pushback when you try to sort of talk about collective actions or how ordinary people responded to things or even that ordinary Black life is worthy of historical study. So part of it was like a political motivation on that part. And part of it was also sort of literary fiction about Black people in the past, especially falls into the trap of exceptionalism. And I wanted to write a book that 
draws you in with the fake out that it's based on the life of this first black female doctor. Um, but it's actually going to be about her daughter and about living in the shadow of all of that. You said, and I'm quoting you here, the spirit I wanted to explore in Liberty is that a person in a limited environment can still make a deep, strange, wonderful world for herself, a world that is not really in conversation with an oppressive structure that thinks it knows everything about her. Am I right that this connects to your discussion of Black spirituals in your New York Times Magazine piece this year, where you were talking about how spirituals offer a view of the consciousness of people in a limited environment and serve as a kind of resistance to oppressive structure that thinks it knows everything about them? Or, or am, I, am I reaching? No, I think it's all connected um, for sure. You know, I think there's something to be said about cultivating one's interiority, especially when you are from a marginalized identity or an, an identity that's sort of actively being targeted by the, by the larger world that you're living in, turning to your interiority and cultivating your interiority and and almost refusal to interact with those things is so key as a point of both survival and as a point of thriving. And so I think, you know, in the context of Black cultural life, particularly the Black cultural life that Black women create, American culture has sort of always been really fascinated with appropriating those pieces of culture that we create that come out of our experiences that come out from sort of that deep interior living. And I think a refusal to engage with that and also a, a desire to keep that stuff hidden is such an interesting vein throughout Black cultural creation and throughout um, different aspects of African-American life and African-American women's lives. Because it's, uh, you know, kept secret, we don't often hear about stuff like that, like the artist who decides to only sort of make stuff for her own community or the uh, musician who doesn't actually want to sign to a label and wants to keep making music for the people who are around her, or the writer who wants to write stuff specifically for the people that she knows and doesn't want to necessarily write for a larger audience. Like those people are creating and, and making beautiful stuff. But that desire for interiority, I think sometimes gets misread as like either they were overlooked because they didn't try and not the idea that they were overlooked because they didn't want to be found. Right. That it was a choice. Mm -hmm. You've also called spirituals maps of profound imagination, which I thought was such a really interesting and provocative way of, of describing them. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So what I love about spirituals is that um, the references to them are the references to mostly the Old Testament, or that's not true. They re reference the New Testament as well, but, um, and they're referencing the natural world as well. So the book Liberty has a lot of spirituals and music in it. Um, and part of the reason of why was because I was trying to find, when I was doing my I was trying to find an understanding of how a formerly enslaved Black person would understand the world around them in the 1860s. And we have like letters and, you know, memoirs, but I really just sort of wanted like an idea of someone, again, who wouldn't have been exceptional, just someone sort of living their lives as a person, how they would have seen the world around them and what their references would have been. Would the reference be to nature? Would the reference be to the Bible? Would the reference be to a certain type of story or a certain type of understanding? And I think spirituals are wonderful for anyone who's interested to sort of understand how people ordered and understood their world and ordered and understood their place in it and also understood what was possible. Mm -hmm. 
You've said that Toni Morrison saw motherhood as a form of freedom and a way of imagining other worlds, particularly for Black women, and that this view has inspired you in your writing. But your books also highlight the confinement that Black daughters especially can feel as a result of their relationship with their mothers. I'm thinking of Liberty herself and also two characters, Charlotte and Nymphadora, in your first novel, We Love You, Charlie Freeman. Can you say a little bit about this tension between the freedom and creative input of the mother on the one hand and the confinement and self-actualization desire of the child on the other? Yeah, I mean, I think um, there's like a couple different threads around that in both projects. Like one of the things I'm always interested in is the myth of the Black mother in American culture, which is either, you know, demonization, like they don't know how to take care of their own children or we can't take care of our own children, or the idea that Black mothers are somehow the most caring, the most virtuous, the most saintly, can never be criticized, can definitely do wrong, but can never be criticized by their children. And I think both of those ways of looking at Black motherhood are deeply problematic and really difficult for the women who become mothers and sort of live between the tensions of those two roles. So I wanted to sort of write in both Liberty and We Love You, Charlie Freeman, mothers who care very deeply for their children and make very grave mistakes during the course of the novel, but are still sort of able to have some sort of a relationship with their kids by the end of it. Um, and it's ex- an exploration of them sort of like living with that um, fact that they are valuable, that they're human. And for the daughters, you know, I see it as a flip side of that, you know, the idea of our role as sort of Black daughters is either to protect the Black mother and make sure that there's never any sort of criticism for her, knowing how hard the outside world is on her, which means that, you know, as a human being, it makes it very difficult to have a genuine relationship with someone if your role is only to say, you're right, you're right, you're right all the time. The flip side of that, of course, is the idea of sort of the daughter sort of speaking truth about the mother who somehow is really awful and terrible and is the, the daughter's responsibility to sort of like right the wrong. And that in itself is also like a really difficult role to to be in. So the daughters in the books, again, are an attempt to sort of explore what can live between those two real extremes that don't allow for a lot of mistakes or empathy or interesting changes that happen. As writers, we hear all the time about the importance of creating multidimensional characters. You know, no single character should be solely good or solely bad. Caitlin obviously takes this principle to the next level. She thinks about how whole categories of people like Black mothers, like Black motivational characters in books, have been reflected in our culture for generations, how complexity gets removed and the ways in which that causes problems. Caitlin really looks to uncover hidden voices in history and searches for evidence, like in spirituals, of the thinking of people who've been silenced as sources for complexity. And of course, there are other sources as well. You know, I went to Times Square last night. I promise you this is relevant to see the <laughs> to see the simulcast of the Metropolitan Opera's new production of Terence Blanchard's opera Fire Shut Up in My Bones. This is the opera that's based on New York Times columnist Charles Blow's memoir, which is also called Fire Shut Up in My Bones. The opera is incredible, by the way, and I urge anyone who can to go see it. 
But one of the things that Charles Blow has said about the experience is, and I'm quoting him from the show notes, I still feel like a little boy from a nowhere place in the world who was very worried that this place that I was writing about was so small and so insignificant in the grand scheme of things that no one would actually care about it. And so to have the Met say that this story is grand enough to grace their stage, it's just an awesome thing that signifies in a lot of ways that there are no small insignificant stories in life. Life itself is not small and insignificant and every life has a story in it. That sounds incredible. Oh, it was it was incredible. I mean, it was a huge night of first. Terence Blanchard is the first black composer to have an opera produced by the Metropolitan Opera. And it was very, very, very moving. And I was just blown away by these remarks of Charles Blow's because they were so relevant to our conversation with Caitlin. Right. And in, in addition to sort of seeking out these more hidden or quote unquote insignificant voices, Caitlin does also focus on better known stories from history too. She has said that one of her favorites is a Harriet Tubman legend. Harriet Tubman used to travel with a pistol, both to protect herself from slave catchers and to encourage people to keep going when they momentarily lost faith. Supposedly, she would cock her pistol at people who were quailing and say, dead Negroes tell no tales. We asked Caitlin why she loves this particular legend so much and whether it plays any role at all in her writing. Here's what she said. I like it more for the audacity of it. You know, like I said, I, I worked for 10 years at Black History Sites and I would do walking tours with the general public. This was for the Boston African-American Heritage Trail, which meets in front of the memorial for the 54th Regiment directly across the street from the State House. When I worked for this site, we would have to stand at the spot in a park ranger uniform. And there would be all these tourists walking by and we gave public tours, just free public tours because we were a federal program every day at 10, 12 and 2. Mm-hmm. So you'd be standing there and people, you know, if you're wearing a park service uniform, people, especially uh, I should say, especially white tourists at that time in like the late 90s, early 2000s, super trustworthy, you know, probably wouldn't talk to a black person in Boston if I was just staying there not wearing that uniform, but you're wearing that uniform, people are suddenly your best friend. So people will come up to you and be like, why are you standing here? You know, like, I'm so glad to see you in uniform. And you'd be like, I'm here to give a tour of the Black Heritage Trail. It's about Boston's Black abolitionists. And you just see their face drop and then like slowly back away and walk away from you. And so I love telling that story because it was such a fun way to catch people off guard about what they thought Black history was. The few people who would take that tour, they were sort of expecting a tour about white saviors, the white abolitionists who made sure Black people were free. Please tell me about the good white people in the North. And doing that tour was so fun because you got to talk about the Black people who were fighting for their own freedom. You know, David Walker, who sort of like wrote about how um, we should be arming slaves and having armed slave rebellion and stuff like that about Harriet Tubman that people were maybe unfamiliar with about her sort of more militant side was all really fun. So that's why I like that story, just because it has like a really sentimental place in my heart. I don't think it really, the way I think it probably plays into my writing is that whenever I'm writing about Black history, I'm looking for that sense of play in it and that sense of unexpectedness in it. I don't approach history or I don't approach Black history from the place of like, why did I never know this? I approach Black history from the place of abundance, from the idea of like, 
Black people have always been multifaceted, always been really fighting for freedom, have always been coming up with ingenious ways to combat the world around us. And the history is there. It's not being hidden from me necessarily. I have to look and I also have to honor the people who have been here before me and worked so hard to preserve it. Mm -hmm. Working in museum sites for 10 years, you must have a couple of favorite stories. Oh, yeah. Um, I think one of the ones that was a lot of fun was I was working, I worked at this place called Weeksville, which is where the inspiration for Liberty came from. So Weeksville is a Black history museum in central Brooklyn, and it's dedicated to the history of the Weeksville community, which was this free Black community that was founded by a bunch of wealthier Black men who bought this tract of land in central Brooklyn, would have been really valueless land when they bought it in the 1830s because it wasn't near the ocean, it wasn't near the waterfront. If you can imagine, this is Brooklyn before there's roads going in and out. So it was a really sort of considered like inaccessible part of land. That's how they were able to get it. And they decided explicitly to sell the land only to Black heads of households so that they could make a voting block in New York. Because at that time in New York to vote, you had to own a certain amount of property. So they advertised in Black newspapers throughout the North saying, come to Weeksville, set up here with us, we're going to make this community. And it worked, and they did. And we would have school groups come through a lot. One time we were there and there was it was a high school school group and they were really just like not happy to be there because it they just weren't happy to be at a history museum on like a sunny day. Um, but, but we wait, did wait a minute. This is a high school group who didn't want to be on a field trip. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just have to get my head around that part first. Yeah, okay. yeah. So they didn't want to be there. And so we gave them this tour of the houses and you could see them like slowly start to get really into it. By the end of it, they were eating lunch with us. And then they all started spontaneously making up a dance to the history like they were repeating the tour back to us it was it's something that i've never seen before it sounds like something out of like a teen movie or something <laughs> they did this spontaneous actually really good dance made up a whole song made up a whole beat to it like in this 30 minutes just synthesized the whole history back to us it's one of the greatest things that i've ever seen as a you know semi-public history educator or whatever it was just amazing so that's probably one of my favorite stories from being there yeah. God, what a moment. Um, okay. But to go back to your books, you've described your first novel, We Love You, Charlie Freeman, as a way to talk about the breakdown of language around the subjects of race and power in the United States. We're curious, what is it in particular about that novel that paves the way for that conversation? Well, for that novel, I started writing it in 2008, right after Obama was first elected. And if you can remember back to that time, there were all those articles about how the United States was now post-racial. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, at the time, I remember talking to everybody that I knew being like, what is this? Where do all these articles, essays come from? This is clearly lies. And why do these keep getting published? And why is this like a talking point on every single television show when it's clearly not the case? I was so struck by the fact that many people didn't even have the language to describe the current racial environments that we lived in because all the language is based on this context of civil rights era stuff when, you know, most of the people living either or and talking about it either were kids when that was happening or people like my age, people who had been born like 20 years after the civil rights movement. And I wanted to, in We Love You, Charlie Freeman, write about families that specifically uh, lives in the 1990s. So they're living 
post-civil rights and they're experiencing being Black in a way that at the time, when I first started writing the book in 2008, was not really sort of talked about a lot, which was sort of being Black in this predominantly white liberal space that is very interested in performing an understanding of race, but isn't necessarily interested in actually engaging with the historical legacies of race or the Black people sort of directly in front of them. Mm -hmm. There's a scene in that book where the oldest daughter, she's arguing with her mother about having to live in this all white town. And and the mother is sort of like, why are you complaining? This is sort of like the best of the best. And the daughter can't get the mother to sort of understand that this isn't something that she strives or sort of wants to be. Being the only black person in this all white, supposedly prestigious place is maybe not where their sort of like collective efforts of striving should go to. And the mother, because she's from a different generation, just cannot wrap her head around that. And they have sort of like a falling out around it. I very much agree with the daughter in that fight that Caitlin just described. This quote unquote prestigious all white home where they've landed is not the right place for them. But, and this is a testament to what a good writer Caitlin is. I'm also sympathetic to the mother and to the difficulty that she has shifting her mindset. I've experienced in my life, this dynamic, right? Especially as you get older, my children and their friends have opinions about subjects that can be complicated, like race and gender. And I've had to struggle a little to kind of wrap my head around their views and and shift what I think. I I know I'm not alone in that. Uh, And I, I have made real progress in understanding their views and seeing some of the flaws in the perspective that I took for granted for a long time. But these kind of generational differences do seem baked into the human experience. I feel like our children are one day going to look at the next generation and say, wait, what? You want me to believe what? I agree. It can be hard to be flexible, especially as we grow older. Change, no matter what your age, can be scary. And it can be scary to think that something you've always believed is one way isn't the only way, or maybe is just plain wrong, you know, because then you have to wonder, geez, what else am I missing? Right. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about aging recently and not just about what it means for me to grow older, but also what it means to be a parent of adult children, which if you think about it, if all goes well, will last much longer than being a parent of not adult children. So I think for me, a key to aging is staying curious and really getting on board with change, embracing it. And that kind of flexibility and curiosity is something we have to prioritize with intention, right? Because it's hard and it takes work. Yeah. That's particularly true for complicated issues like race. It feels like we've recently been, a, been at a flashpoint in history when it comes to issues of race. Caitlin's first book came out in 2016, and her second book was released this year. We asked her whether during that time span she'd seen any changes in the publishing landscape with respect to books addressing race. Here's what she said. We just passed last summer when books about how Black people and white people should confront each other surged up the bestseller list. You know, there are all these sort of like anti-racist reading lists. In the last couple of years, there have been uh, big blockbuster books that are either about some piece of Black history, like The Warmth of Other Suns, or are supposed to be sort of Bibles about how to approach race, like, you know, stamp from the beginning or, or that kind of stuff. I think there's an intense 
interest in it. But, you know, as a student of Black history, again, this moment just feels like many other moments that have come before it. You know, the publishing industry is notorious for having these spikes of interest about race. You know, it happened most famously during the Harlem Renaissance. And then there was a whole birth, not because there weren't Black people producing work, but because the sore on eye of the public industry decided like, (laughs) and then it happened again during the civil rights movement. And then again, throughout the 80s and 90s, when you talk to novelists who are two generations before me, you know, their whole thing is like, we could not pay an editor to read our stuff, but we were all producing it. No, everybody told us we couldn't sell. I think the difference that's happening right now is 20 or 30 years ago, a magazine editor, probably a white male magazine editor could say, all right, we've had six months of Black stuff. We're done with that. We're not going to cover that anymore. We're not going to talk about it anymore. It's time to move on. Our readers don't want it anymore. Stop commissioning it. And that would have been the end of it. We have social media now where you can't really do that because the conversation is going on outside of the purview of those gatekeepers and is continually evolving. And because there's more people involved, the conversation is going much deeper, going in in directions that media gatekeepers could not control. So it's more sort of like, let me keep an eye on this sort of cyclone that's over to the left, because if I turn my back on it, it's going to overtake me. I don't necessarily know that it's like genuine, deep interest in furthering Black literature and making sure you're publishing the best stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. The New York Times notes that your sister Carrie is a historian uh, who specializes in African-American and African diaspora histories, literature and politics. And your other sister, Kirsten, is an Obie Award winning playwright and a theater professor at Boston University. It talks a little too about your your mom saying you were raised by a single mother who struggled to support the family on a social worker's salary. So my question is like, what was it like at your dinner table growing up? And how, if at all, would you say that this family background has affected your writing? Um, You know, our dinner table is like a really loud thing. <laughs> I don't think, you know, we're not really like sitting around having esoteric conversations. We watched a, an incredible amount of television, an incredible amount of music videos, movies. Growing up, the TV was always on. The cable box was always burning. You know, it's really funny to be a parent now and sort of like see the sort of like intense preciousness about raising kids that I don't think we were, we were subjected to in some ways and that we were given a lot of opportunities in terms of making sure that we had really excellent educations. And um, at least for my sisters when my mom could afford it, extracurricular activities. And we always had books around as well. We were a reading household, but the idea of like limiting screen time didn't exist. The idea of like, don't have a four-year-old watch an R-rated movie, no, did not exist. So like, <laughs> I think that kind of preciousness around stuff is super funny to me because at least as the youngest, like that's where so much stuff came from. You know, I, I watched Agnes of God as a four-year-old. It totally scared me for a lifetime. It also really, really shaped me as an artist and the things that I'm interested in in, in an interesting way. I'm, I'm happy that that happened. Yeah. And what about books in your household? Did you have favorite books when you were a kid? How did they impact you? Uh, Yeah, too many to count. I mean, um when we were changing apartments and getting evicted a lot, that was sort of like the one thing that always came with us was a bunch of books. And of course, you know, like libraries and stuff, I can't really remember specific titles, but books and reading were super important and just always around and available and easy to pick up. And again, no attempting to 
mandate or scrutinize our reading. So really, we could read anything that we wanted. You know, our picture books were alongside bowl of days on the coffee table. So you would be reading, you know, Eloise and then sort of look over and see these pictures of escaped slaves, you know, backs and stuff like that. So it was a real sort of smorgasbord of content and um, reading. And with, again, the caveat of like, we talk about the things that are difficult or hard or really troubling or, um, you know, unsettling. Those are a point to have a conversation between a kid and an adult in the house. Yeah. Yeah. So it's clear that a tremendous amount of research goes into your writing. Do you have any especially surprising or memorable stories that you uncovered doing research for Liberty that you'd like to share? It was a lot of fun to research this novel, I should say. Um, part of the book takes place in Haiti, so it was researching Haitian history. And there are so many sort of beautiful tidbits about Haitian history that I wasn't able to include. Like, I was reading some stuff about slightly earlier periods of Haitian history, so under the reign of Henri Christophe. Henri Christophe was the emperor of Haiti um, shortly after the Haitian Revolution. And what was really fascinating uh, about when he was ruler was the slave trade was still going on essentially illegally mm-hmm. and they were going after illegal slave trade ships. And one of the ships that they captured, they were able to uh, take it over. They brought everybody on the ship back to Haiti and the ship was actually full of children, which is so heartbreaking. So they rescued all these children who were about to be sold into slavery. And when they got to Haiti, because Haiti had such a strong connection to uh, West African culture and language the people in Haiti were able to speak to the children who had been stolen from Africa. They shared a language, even though they, you know, the people in Haiti had been here for generations. It's really beautiful. So if you can imagine like this kid kidnapped into slavery on the slave ship, you know, living through that horror, being rescued, and then the miracle of being able to talk to your rescuers and to be in this island, you know, you didn't even know existed, and to meet these people who shared your culture and your language, and they're your rescuers and they keep you safe. It was just like a really beautiful story and alternative to a lot of the really awful stories about that time period. That is such a beautiful story. I'm so glad she shared it. Yes, and I can't think of a better note to end on. So I am going to say that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Caitlin at caitlingreenage.com. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Ah.